Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Margaret McFerrin. Margaret is the director and proprietor at Honey Bees, a clothes manufacturer and retailer based in Warwickshire. Margaret, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on this fine afternoon. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to join you on this podcast. It's a real pleasure having you, and it certainly is a lovely day for it as well. Um, so, oh, yeah. um, the purpose of this uh, discussion, first and foremost, uh, Margaret, is to establish your take on um, the issue of leadership. So, um, if we right. look at that word leader in isolation for a second, just to begin, I'm interested yeah. to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, to me, it's you're um, a good leader, you're going to be positive because you've got to motivate your team. You're going to be strong, very good communicator, positive mental attitude. That's the main thing. Keep positive and then, you know, that will reflect on the team. Um, I also think you've got to be a great people manager. Mm. You've got to be able to think strategically, uh, be open to what the team is saying and get their ideas and foster a sense of connection and belonging. And I think you've got to be firm but fair, but also empathetic as well. And um, those sorts of qualities point to a very inclusive form of leadership there, a very collaborative sort. Um, Would that sort of summarise your own personal leadership model, would you say? Well, I'll try and put these into practice because I think it depends on individuals that you are leading because you have to be all sorts, to all sorts. But the main thing is be kind and listen and motivate everybody to work together as a good team. So, yes, I would say, yes, I do that. And when it comes to motivating people, it takes a degree of flexibility and adaptability as well as a business leader, doesn't it? And the reason I say that is because we have to understand what makes different people tick and what motivates them. So it's recognising that no one particular strategy or approach necessarily works for everyone. And that's become very relevant with regards to the COVID-19 situation, hasn't it? Because a lot of people have had to adapt to different ways of working, be that remotely, be that continuing to work on site under new safety regulations and procedures. And some people will adapt to that very easily whereas others may need a little bit more reassurance and a little bit more of an arm around them from their business leaders just to give them a bit of encouragement amid all of the worry. So that is an incredibly important element of leadership, especially in the context of the here and now. Yeah, I totally agree there because um, the COVID-19 has affected us severely because of what we do. When I say what we do, our main audience or our main customers are dance schools and events, hen parties, music festivals, and everything that is going to be last to be brought back online because of COVID-19. And I've chatted with everybody because I want to put people, <coughs> excuse me, I want to put people's mind at rest because it's very difficult during these uncertain times. Um, but I must say I did get a lot of help and guidance from the Coventry and Warwickshire business hub, especially a lady there called Louise, because when we had, um, I think it was around about the 16th, 17th of March, 
all of a sudden our sales just dropped. We had nothing. And I thought, how on earth am I going to pay everybody? So what I had to do was say, why am I saving? Um, I, I panicked a little bit, so I spoke to this lady, Louise, and she sent me information that their HR department had released. She encouraged me and she constantly told me to just look on their site because everything was being updated every day. And um, not not to worry, I and mean, it's difficult to say not to worry because you're worrying about everybody else. Because it's not just they work for you and, and you've got their best interest at heart. If you've got no money coming in and you've got no work, then it's going to reflect. So I was so relieved when eventually the government put this plan of action into place. So it was a relief because everybody was concerned. Everybody was worried what was going to happen to their jobs. Um, and I couldn't answer because I don't know and I'm still uncertain. But because furlough is there, everybody's okay. We've also had the small business rates relief grant, which has mm. helped. We still have lots of outgoings. You know, I've got the rental of the factory, I've got the electricity bill, I've got everything else. So that's still got to run in the background. But also, I've got to look now to diversify and try and manufacture something that, regardless of COVID-19, I can sell. And um, obviously, of course, the COVID pandemic is going to affect our working practices in the future as we adapt to the yeah. new normal that everybody's talking about. Um, but what features of this lockdown period do you think will end up becoming permanent parts of the way that we operate and we do business? We're in uncertain times. We're in unprecedented times. And like I said before, we've got to diversify but I couldn't give you an answer because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or within 12 months' time. If mm. we, or not we, but, you know, if there's a vaccine that's made or a cure for this COVID and we can get life to normal as we knew it, that's fine, but that may not be the case. So that's why we've got to think differently and make sure we put health and safety at the forefront and move our business forward, you know, think positive. We've got to think we can't fail. I know lots of businesses are failing when we see the news and multi-million pound businesses are failing, but it's pulling together, discussing things with everybody. Well, I do. I have a chat with everybody and I'll ask them, what do you think? What, what, what should we do? Are there any new ideas? Is there any new designs or equipment that we can get? So it is moving forward, but being positive that, yes, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. And it's been an incredible learning curve for businesses this period as well, hasn't it? And um, as you've um, adapted to this new reality and you've talked um, in uh, great detail about that, um, have you learned anything yourself from a business perspective, not just, of course, about sort of managing the business through a crisis, but also about the business itself and those employees around you as well and how they've applied themselves? Yeah, well, we're a family business, which is fantastic. Um, and I don't want to let anybody down. When I say family business, we're mainly a family business. And I've worked hard to develop the business and get it to where it is. So everybody's comments are valued. 
So, yes, I'm, I'm in Pittman daily. Uh, I'll say things to them, like, what do you think to this? Or what do you think to that? And I'll send pictures. And I'm, I'm at home making things because, as I say, they're on furlough, but I'm still trying to come up with something that will see us through. Mm, and thinking of the future in just a little bit more detail, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program, I'm interested yeah. to understand, uh, Margaret, what you envision um, over the uh, the next year happening for yourself and for the business, and what you, we what you hope to achieve rather as we um, sort of move through into the next stage of the pandemic and begin to look toward the long term. Well, I'm hoping to achieve the business still operational. I want it to still run. So I'm going to put all my energies and all my efforts into this. Um, it's a challenge. I know it is. As you said before, we've never had anything like this. It's all new. So we have to design ways of working around this. So it's constantly um, brainstorming and what about this and what about that? No idea is a bad idea. It's, it's got to be done. And then let's see if this works and we can fly with it and keep people in a job. Mm. And one last thing just before um, we, um, well, I let you go, uh, Margaret. Um, if you were to give some advice based upon your experience in business as somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role, particularly given your experience of recent crisis management as well, if we could call it that, um, what advice would you give them? Don't give up. Follow your dreams and be positive. If you've got a dream, chase it. If everybody could be in business, they would. One of those things that it is hard, it is difficult, but if you've got that drive and that determination, stay with it. Look at Walt Disney, look what he did. Mm. Imagination is a great thing, so believe in yourself. I think that's fantastic advice indeed. Margaret, I've got to say, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme this um, afternoon. And given just oh, how enjoyable you. it's been, um, an experience yeah. uh, for myself and also hopefully for the listeners tuning into this, I actually think it would be fantastic if at some point in the next year we could catch up and have you back on the air with us just to see how the business is getting on at that point in time and maybe reflect oh. on what's changed in the meantime as well. Yeah, that would be lovely. I'll be honest. Thank you so much. I really would. Thank you. It would be fantastic, Margaret. Um, Thank you ever so much again for your time taken to uh, join us. And most importantly, until we do speak again in the future, I'm sure, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, are we? You too. That's the main thing. Take care and stay safe. That was Margaret McFerrin speaking, director and proprietor at Honeybees. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has become the director of cricket for the England-Wales Cricket Board. However, during his playing days, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. During his tenure as skipper, he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history quite impressive and i hope that you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with sir andrew that is all coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today real pleasure to be here thank you the pleasure is all of ours you know 
And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up d 
doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, I think it was the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm-hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the, 
biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty 
uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, freshly school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had 
lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a. Uh, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day. What an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.